North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Uh, good evening to those of you in Asia. Good morning to those of you here on the East Coast of the United States. And good day to all of you elsewhere in the world and in the country. Uh, my name is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President for Asia and Professor at Georgetown University. And welcome to another episode of The Impossible State. Today, we're going to be talking about what Kim's support of Putin means for the war in Ukraine. And we are joined by... Uh, I'm really excited. We are joined by one of these, this country's leading journalists with regard to Russia and Russia-related issues. You have seen her for years on CNN. She's now a professor at Georgetown University, so we're really happy to have her at Georgetown as well, uh, Jill Doherty. Jill, let me, let me properly <laughs> introduce you, although you need no introduction to, uh, to our audience. Um, um, so Jill Doherty is an expert on Russia. She is currently teaching at Georgetown University's Center for Eurasian, Russian, and Eastern European Studies. She is also a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholar for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and a member of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute Advisory Council. Um, she has been pursuing research on Russia and the media as a fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at Harvard. Um, at the Wilson Center and at the International Center for Defense and Security in, is it Tallinn? Tallinn. Oh, Tallinn, yeah. Estonia. Uh -huh. um, but you will all know her for the three decades she worked as a correspondent for CNN, uh, where she worked on Russia and the post-Soviet region. Uh, she served as CNN Moscow bureau chief for almost a decade, and her other postings included, included the White House, the State Department, uh, U.S. Affairs Editor and Managing Editor for CNN International, which is based, was based in Hong Kong. Right. Um, she is now a CNN on-air contributor, commenting on Russia and Russia-related issues. Her articles, books, and re book reviews and commentary have appeared in The Atlantic, Politico, Washington Quarterly, The Washington Post, CNN. She hosts a blog on Russia issues sponsored by the Kennan, Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center that goes by the name Kenan X. That is really cool. Um, and of course, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and World Affairs Council. Jill, thank you so much for being with us oh, today. I'm so glad to be here, Victor. Really, really. Yeah. It's a treat because you're the expert for well, me. Well, uh, well, that's very kind of you. We're, and we're really happy to have you teaching at Georgetown now. What, so what are you teaching now? You know, I teach two courses. One that right now that I'm teaching is in uh, information wars, disinformation, propaganda. Uh, focus on Russia, but we get into a little bit of China, a um, couple of other countries, but basically Russia. Mm. And then in the spring, I teach a course that I call the Putin Generation. Uh. I may have to change that name, <laughs> but uh, it's about young people. Who are the young people in Russia? And the ones who have grown up with no leader other than Vladimir Putin, are they different? Oh, That's the gist of it. Yeah. Interesting. And this is graduate level? This is graduate uh, it's level. both undergrads and graduate students. It's at the School of Foreign Service. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. terrific. 
So, but, so that's why you should come to Georgetown, everybody Absolutely. out there listening. We get, you get to get professors like, uh, like Professor Doherty. Um, okay, so to get us started, Jill, I mean, so you've been following uh, what's been going on with regard to the war in Europe now. Um, I've been watching you, reading your commentaries. Um, um, it's not a topic we often talk about on this podcast because mm-hmm. we're focused more on sort of North Korea, the Korean Peninsula. But maybe we could start off by you just giving, giving us your views on the current state of the war situation, you know, are we reading the papers about this counteroffensive and like mm-hmm. how it's been going? Um, uh, is there a stalemate? Um, is an armistice possible? We'd love to just sort of start off by hearing your views on this. Yeah, it's, you know, at this point, obviously there's more attention being paid to the Middle East, but we will eventually get back, I'm sure, to what's happening in Ukraine. But up to this point, I'd say it's kind of a situation of stasis. Um, if you look at the counteroffensive or the Russians pushing back against that, it's literally you know a kilometer here, mm-hmm. five kilometers there. It's just kind of back and forth with not a whole lot of progress. Um, I do think it's not as bad as it was perceived for the Ukrainians a while ago. But I'd have to say that, you know, long term or kind of big picture for Putin. uh, Remember, he went in there expecting it to be over in a few days. Mm -hmm. And it is now more than a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And it shows no sign of ending. And I think for Putin, that could be his strategy at this point. Just play it out, uh, try to decimate Ukraine as much as he can, uh, create havoc uh, in Europe, wait until the allies fall apart, wait until the American election in 2024. Mm -hmm. And he has an election, by the way, in March of 2024 too. Mm -hmm. But I think if he's, you know, around, he will probably win that, surprisingly. Mm. Uh, but uh, so there's, I think there's a big waiting game. But in the meantime, and I think this is where Korea comes in, North Korea, uh, it's it, it, truly an ammunition war at this point of just mm. burning up enormous amounts of ammunition. And that is where your fantastic research about supplies going back and forth comes in. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, so before I want to talk about that, but before I go to that, you mentioned sort of the Middle East and Gaza, and I guess the question I have is: Is there a worry about war fatigue in Ukraine now that there's? I mean, as a journalist, like I, I all the focus is on Gaza right now, yeah. and so yeah. how does that affect the the war in Ukraine? Well, you just have to turn on the TV to see that basically you don't see a lot of news about Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of a function of TV. I mean, the, the there is no question that what's happening in the Middle East is horrendous, um, com- very compelling. Mm. It's human stories. And so it's going to, uh, you know, command a lot of airtime. Uh, but but I think, you know, the there are interesting connections. Uh, In fact, just this morning, Victor, I was watching CNN, and there was a live shot from the region, from Israel, and the anchor was saying that uh, she had been taken to a store of weapons that Hamas had, according to the Israeli forces. And the Israeli forces were showing her that uh, collection there. And interestingly, she said the weapons were coming from Iran and 
guess where? Hmm. North Korea. Hmm. Hmm. So there's a lot of weaponry floating around in conflict zones uh, really around the world. And I think that's where you get this connection um, you know, hidden transfers, money being shipped back and forth, weapons being shipped back and forth. And remember um, uh, Prigozhin, Mr. Prigozhin, mm -hmm. who had the Wagner group, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and who was killed in the plane crash recently. They were, of course, uh, uh, you know, taking money from the Russian government and from their work in Africa and all over in conflict zones mm -hmm. and buying weapons. And they were also involved with the North Koreans. So mm -hmm. here we go with these connections interlocked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. So um, speaking about munitions and arms transfers and the way Russia is blowing through all this ammunition in the war in Ukraine. Um, so the White House uh, released some very interesting imagery uh, this week. And, and I really give... Um, the uh, the administration and DNI Haynes credit for you know downgrading this information so that it could be released to the public and mm -hmm. here we see uh, very clearly the uh, the case of um, this is in Najin Port in North Korea so we're here Najin Port in North Korea there are all these containers uh, of approximately 300 shipping containers that have been staged at Najin Port. Um, and the, uh, John Kirby, our friend John Kirby, uh, was at the podium and uh, presented this graphic in which we see that the, they, the White House argues these munitions are moving from Najin port. Uh, they are going to um, Russia. And then we see this long train ride here to get it to um, the other side of Russia for, for the war in Ukraine. Um, so this is what the White House released this week. Um, whenever the White House releases imagery like this that we can't access, we immediately look at the location and the timestamp, and we collect commercial imagery of our own. And so this is a story uh, that we've released this week where we're here looking at this is a close-up of Najin Port, um, and you can see that the, there are um, shipping containers here, right? This is Pier 3, and there are shipping containers here at Pier 2, uh, and I want to make sure that this version of it has it. These are photos from October 16th. Um, and here's a photo from October 13th of uh, uh, one of the ports where there's more containers here. So these are the, the Kirby statement said that they thought there was a shipment. Their photos showed there was a shipment sometime between early September and the first week of October. These are pictures from this week, right, October yeah. October 13th, which means that there are more shipments now going. Yeah. It's not just, it was not just the original 300 containers, but there's clearly a lot more stuff that's going over there. And and so I guess um, the, the question I have for you, Jill, is someone who has really, who has covered this, um, and then, um, and uh, uh, I've seen you sort of talking about the war itself, like how much is this stuff if we assume that these are all, this is all ammunition, like how much is this stuff actually helping Putin? The White House initially, when they talked about the Wagner shipment, said that this, the North Koreans are shipping some stuff to the Wagner group, but it's not going to affect the overall outcome of the war. I've noticed that they don't say that anymore. Mm, right? They mm -hmm. don't say that anymore. So I'm curious as to when you see something like this, what are you what are you thinking? Well, I mean, I'm not a military expert, but from what I understand. Um, 
this when we, when we were talking about burning through a lot of uh, ammunition, this that that is coming from North Korea, which I understand produces enormous mm. amounts of maybe not that sophisticated mm. uh, artillery and and munitions, but it is enough for the Russians mm. because if they have to um, <clears throat> in any day. Uh, launch, you know, enormous amounts of ammunition, they themselves can't produce that much. They're trying to crank it up, but at this point they can't. So they need as much as they can get. And even if it is, you know, World War II level uh, in sophistication, it's very helpful because they just want to pound the other side. That's mm. essentially what they're doing. And that is the dilemma for the Ukrainians, that they don't have enough uh, artillery either. They don't use as much, mm. nearly enough, mm. uh, as much as the Russians do. So I think artillery, even though it, it seems kind of primitive in its sophistication, is really crucial to this war. Yeah, I think there was even a report that at one point in uh, uh, territory that was that was taken by the Ukrainians, that they had found some Rus uh, some North Korean munitions there and were using it against the Russians. So mm. North Korean munitions were ending up on both sides of this, but yeah. clearly because they were being sourced to sourced to Russia. Um, oh, and so, you know, Victor, yeah. I just want to say, one of the reasons that they can both use them is that they have Soviet weapons. Uh, they uh, still have some Soviet weapons. So it's interoperable. I see. Uh, this is not NATO quality, you yeah. know, but it's, it's the old Soviet stuff. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so then if, if the game plan for Putin is to just, you know, to try to wear the other side down, like go through another winter, right, in Europe, wait for the U.S. presidential election, you know, a year from now, then this constant supply of munitions is allowing Putin to carry out that strategy. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and it, it, actually, a slow approach might be what he wants. Obviously, he his original idea was to go all the way to Kiev, uh, get rid of Zelensky, take over the government and control Ukraine. Um, but that said, I think at this point it is just a pounding. I'm not quite sure what he thinks he's going to accomplish with this, other than there's there's that element of the, of the punitive side to this mm. that is mm. really um, frightening right. in a way. Right. Um, why he is specifically doing this and going after civilian targets yeah, and things definitely. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, horrible situation. Um, so the one other thing I wanted to ask you about is that um, there are many things that have caught the attention of countries in Asia with regard to this war, but one of them were, were threats that Putin had made early on in the war. I don't know if he made them recently, threats about the possible use or first use of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, I think it was in the event of NATO intervention or at the prospect of NATO intervention. Um, so I guess two questions. One is um, uh, the context in which Putin has made this threat. Like, I mean, uh, and then second, is it a real threat? I mean, in your mind, is this something that Putin could actually consider? And the reason I ask this is um, if we go back to the Korean Peninsula, uh, the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, as soon as Putin said this, sort of adopted this wholesale mm. into his sort of strategic or nuclear doctrine, the, the prospect of the first use uh, of tactical nuclear weapons to deter others. 
Yes. Okay. So there's so many levels to this, but I'd say, mm-hmm. number one, we have to distinguish, as, as we both know, between tactical and strategic. Mm-hmm. So strategic nuclear weapons, ICBMs streaking across the sky at Washington I, is not what we're talking mm-hmm. about. You know, we're talking about tactical, smaller, but very powerful um, nuclear weapons that could be used in the battlefield, mm-hmm. on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think the reason that Putin brings this up is because basically that is his only game at this point. His economy is weak. His military uh, really did not perform very well in the beginning, to say the least. They have been improving somewhat, but really it was a bad show in the beginning for an army that we all thought was quite powerful. So, um, you know, he he needs to show that he can do something. And what does he turn to? He turns to nuclear weapons, which are frightening mm. and would mean t- true either devastation or uh, the scare tactics that he can use, um, I think, are all part of this. Mm. He gets the world worried and the the, uh, the West worried about the fact that he might use these weapons. Now, I think there's another, I I watch Russian TV a Mm. lot indirectly, Mm. kind of, Mm. and um, if you look at Russian TV almost any night, they have talk shows. And on those talk shows, they have usually kind of bloviating people who have the Kremlin message, and they yell at each other back and forth. And the conversation is often, we ought to drop a bomb on Paris, or we ought to drop a bomb on London, or maybe even Washington, D.C. So Putin comes in, and when he does this, he uses kind of an indirect approach sometimes. Um, You know, well, we have the potential for uh, things that, that don't sound like we will drop a bomb. This is not this is not TV talk shows, mm. but it's disturbing because it is Putin, president, who does have the power to drop a bomb on Washington. So sometimes he plays the role of, you know, scaring the West. And at other points, internationally and domestically, he plays the role of the adult in the room mm. who's saying, well, you know, what we actually could do and the other could do now gets into conventional weapons because, you know, just as we are speaking, the Russian government, their parliament, is trying to pull back its ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, Mm. which it actually did, you know, sign and ratify. Now they're saying, well, the United States may have signed it, but they didn't ratify it. And look what's happening. We should pull out, too, Mm. in a mirror image of what the United States is doing. Mm. So there, too, that's kind of, you know, it's nuclear, it's testing, it's not attacking. But pulling out of a test ban treaty is pretty serious. So this is all... I guess we could say, again, saber-rattling. But the problem is you don't always know that it's definitely going to be saber-rattling. I mean, there could be an existential moment where Putin decides that he would do this. So my mind, I guess, says, yes, it is possible that he would do that. I do not think it's probable. And I think he's rational about these things as much as, Mm. you know, 
you, you can be rational. So, um, it, but it's very frightening because enter Kim Jong-un, and mm -hmm. enter other people uh, in the Russian government who would actually, I believe, want to drop a bomb on Berlin, Paris, yeah. Washington. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting. Um, the, the way you just described this sort of these roles that different people play in this is, is not dissimilar from what we see in North Korea in the sense that um, in 2017, uh, when Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump were going head to head, you know, threatening each other, um, that was pretty frightening. But then with the um, appearance of his younger sister, right, Kim oh, Yo-jong, nice. it's interesting because she's now sort of taking the role, on the role as the hardliner. She's hmm. the one who hmm. sort of really like spews vitriol at South Korea, at the United States. And Kim is more silent. The, the leader, Kim Jong-un, the older brother, is more silent on these things. Huh. So it's, uh, yeah, so it's playing this balancing out, you know, what, what Thomas Schelling used to call it, the threat that leaves something to chance, right, to try mm -hmm. to get everybody a little bit nervous yeah. about what they're doing, and it's meant to have sort of a deterrent, uh, a deterrent effect. Um, but that's interesting. I did not know that they were looking to find ways to get out of the CTBT. That, yeah. that's, that's actually very interesting and very concerning. Um, um, so let me, one other question I want to ask you on this particular topic is just your views on NATO support right now. Do you, do you see NATO support as strong? I mean, we've been through one winter. We're about to go through another one. How, how do you see things there? Yeah, I think it's quite strong. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't see any diminution in support for Ukraine. Um, I think from NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, if you look at some of the NATO countries, there's no question that they are really devoted. The Baltics, especially, mm -hmm. you know, Estonia. The the percentage that they give to their defense has increased, so they're they're on board. I think the danger for Ukraine is more um, political, and actually here in the United States by ultra-conservatives who make the case, well, we don't really have the money to do this, you know. Um, that is a, a false uh, issue. Mm -hmm. the, the United States does, at least at this point, mm -hmm. have enough uh, to be able to continue to help Ukraine. But it, I, I'm worried that this is really uh, in danger in a sense that we have the political chaos on Capitol Hill and there are many people involved in that chaos mm -hmm. who really do not want to help Ukraine, um, are sometimes even you know, more positive to Russia's role in this, surprisingly. So yeah. I think that's the danger. Yeah. Yeah, and the continuing resolution, right? They had to yeah. pull the Ukraine uh, part out of their continuing resolution. Exactly. That's, a, that's not a good omen. I mean, one of the interesting things is that now that North Korea is involved in Ukraine, you know, through this support of Putin. Um, it's raised a lot of discussion in South Korea about the role that South Korea should play because, mm -hmm. you know, North Korea has basically now pulled Korea into the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. um, and um, in particular, as we'll talk about in a minute, if, if Putin's providing other stuff to North, to, 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 to North Korea, that's a problem for South Korea. So I just came back um, from South Korea where, you know, there's a, I wouldn't say it's dominating the conversation but there's more talk now about what more should South Korea do. You know, they provide a lot of humanitarian assistance. They've backfilled Poland and the U.S. Army with munitions. Um, if there's any place in the world there's a stockpile of munitions, it's on the Korean Peninsula. And South Korea's stuff is much better. 
yeah. than than North Korea stuff. So it'll be I'm I'm watching that very closely. This South Korean president is is a very forward leaning person when it comes to the war in Ukraine. He's talked about it. Uh, he's reused very strong language with regard to it. I think he's almost testing his public to see. Uh, where they stand on South Korea doing more. So that's, I think, going to be interesting to watch. Um, if we could turn out to um, this meeting that took place between Kim and Putin. I mean, I watched it with a great deal of interest, um, had some thoughts about it from a, from a, a Korean, North Korean perspective. But I'm curious, like, I don't really have a sense of how Putin looked at this meeting. Of course, he wanted the munitions, but like, and I think it, I don't know. It's not the first time they met. They met in 2019 in Vladivostok. Mm. But w- from your perspective, how do how does Russia, how does Putin look at that? Look at that meeting with this odd man from North Korea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I think you nailed it in the sense that um, Kim can provide something that Putin needs right now, mm. and Putin mm. really is not necessarily a long-term strategic thinker. He's very tactical, mm-hmm. and at this point, the war—I I don't think he knows where the war is going. And maybe we don't even understand. Maybe he doesn't have a complete strategy on Ukraine to begin with. Mm. Where does he want this to go? So, he needs something right now, and here's where he can get it. I do think that it must be galling to the diplomats in Russia who used to deal with, you know, European countries and and with Japan and Korea, you know, the big nations, the important nations, and now are dealing with their best friends are North Korea and Iran. It, It must be truly, I think, you know, for some of the very seasoned diplomats in Russia, it must be galling. So I do think, um, you know, if you look at it, it, they've been asked, the press secretary for Mr. Putin was asked, you know, well, um, you know, why are you having this relationship with North Korea? And it's the usual, well, we have good relations with every country. Mm. But I do think, Victor, when um, you were talking about the Defense Department NSC talking about and releasing this mm. information, that is they are using that pre-bottle, as we call it in the mm. propaganda world, pre-bottle um, more and more. And yeah. I think it's really effective just calling their bluff, because I remember when the the uh, invasion happened in February of 2022, I actually was in Moscow mm. for CNN filling in with some commentary. And I remember the Russians, you know, uh, anchors looking at their watches saying, well, the U.S. says we're going to invade. So it's Tuesday, 5 p.m. We haven't invaded yet. When's the invasion coming? And, of course, the invasion came within days. So calling their bluff and making these things public, I think, is very effective, yeah, very yeah. effective. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that is interesting that, I mean— the opportunities for Russia, Russian diplomats with countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia, and others in the region, you know, now to the extent they even talk to them at all, the conversation is probably only about one thing now, right? Yeah. Which is, yeah. what are you doing with North Korea? What are you doing with Iran? It's really, it's really something. The the from you know from uh, the Asia perspective, this Kim trip to Russia was actually very important for the North Korean leader. Um, They were just coming out of a three-year lockdown over COVID. Prior to that, the North Korean leader was embarrassed 
by failed symmetry with Donald Trump, right? He took a train, you know, he doesn't like to fly, so he <laughs> takes a train all the way to Vietnam, Hanoi, in 2019. Trump uh, ends the meeting um, early, doesn't even t attend the lunch and says, we're leaving, mm. uh, and Kim has to take the long train ride back. It was, you know, it. I mean, the United States were used to sort of um, criticizing our leaders and everything, but the, as you know, in North Korea, they have this carefully crafted myth of the leader and how great he is. And for him to lose face like that was really big. So mm. this this Putin need for, for ammunition for Ukraine was like a gift to the North Korean leader where he could, at the, you know, like one in one sense, come out of the pandemic with this big trip. And then two, be in a situation now where Russia needs stuff from North Korea. It, mm -hmm. Historically, it's always been the other way around. North Korea needs patron aid from the Soviet Union, Russia. North Korea needs debt relief from the Soviet Union, Russia. Now it's it's reversed, and so for Kim, it's a uh, it's uh, this is like he's he feels like he's in a great place. The um, the other thing that uh, we're concerned about is um, uh, North Korea is providing munitions, and and the North Koreans need food and fuel coming out of a three-year COVID lockdown. But there's a lot of concern in national security circles that Putin might be willing to provide other things. For me, I can't imagine the North Korean leader going to Russia for this, whatever it was, six-day trip just for food. Like, I don't <laughs> no. think he'd do that, yeah. right? Um, and now we have imagery and we have statements from the White House that shows that a deal was clearly made before this because there are like hundreds of containers going going to Russia. So. The concern is that they might be providing um, technology, for, Russia might be providing technology for military satellites, mm -hmm. uh, for nuclear-powered submarines, for ICBMs. And so I guess the question I have is, do you think that's possible? Do you think that Putin would do something like that um, that has obviously broader ramifications for the United States and homeland security? Do you think that Putin would do that? I think he would. Mm. Um, mm. I, uh, sadly, I mean, that I think is the scariest thing of all, mm. that, mm. Uh, that he would break, uh, you know, UN resolutions, Security Council resolutions to do that. And maybe a few years ago, you'd think, no, he wouldn't go that far. Mm. But I think at this point, you know, you have to look at the way he looks at the world. And right now, he looks at the relationship with the West as he is involved in a war with the West. You know, Ukraine, he would argue, is not really the issue here. It's really the West mm -hmm. uh, exploiting Ukraine to try to attack mm -hmm. Russia. And he, the, the country is increasingly, Russia is increasingly on a war footing economically. And I think that changes the dynamics. So, um, you know, the things that might have held him back uh, may no longer hold him back as much as they did. And you look at some of the, uh, in your studies here and mm -hmm. your uh, pictures, there's a lot of subterfuge. You know, they're covering them with tarps right. and hiding them, and the uh, ship transponders are turned off and things like that. You don't do that unless you're moving something that's important and you don't want it to be seen. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. not moving food in that way, as you, as you pointed right. out. Right. So I, I think it is entirely possible yeah. that you would do yeah. that. Yeah, 10 UN Security Council resolutions, right? The Russians had signed on to 10 UN Security Council mm -hmm. resolutions. 
and they're all and to your point about ration you know you said earlier that he's he's a rational actor but like even rational actors when they get into desperate situations they become more risk acceptant right they're willing to yes. do things they wouldn't do otherwise and putin could very well be in that situation okay um so just to uh, let let's finish on uh, on a uh, small topic and i say that sort of um uh, um sarcastically and that is um china right mm-hmm. um we were talking earlier before we went on air that um we believe that putin right now is in beijing mm-hmm. he's going to um, be at the belt and road forum or meetings yeah 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 and so um, I mean, we're speculating, but how do you think that the Chinese are looking at this newfound cooperation between DPRK and Russia? Yeah, because China supposedly has influence, um, and that's usually the way it's looked upon, at least by the West, that China could be a, a mitigating you know, force with North Korea. Um, that part of it, I don't really quite understand. Mm-hmm. I don't see that China has maybe as much influence. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in that particular relationship, but as much as maybe others expected. But I do think that China vis-a-vis Russia, um, it's, you know, they, they still don't, they call it a partnership, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. no limits partnership, mm-hmm. but it's not really. It's not a. Um, uh, it doesn't go beyond a partnership, technically using that word. So what is it? Well, I mean, they carry out military operation, uh, military exercises together, but I think that there's something else that they're doing, which is really based on ideology mm-hmm. and their view of the world, so that they both resent the United States running things in the world. You know, Putin believes that the United States goes around the world telling people what to do. And he has found, uh, you know, compatriots in China who look at it in the same way. Mm -hmm. So that conversely, if you create problems for the hegemon, Uh, then that's a way of taking action against the hegemon. So the more chaos in the world, the more unpredictability, the more like what is North Korea up to with with Russia, that all helps Putin because it's very unclear. It's almost, I would argue, a propaganda technique by Russia itself to make the world as confusing and scary as possible. Uh, keep people on edge, not know exactly what he's up to or what Kim is up to or where this is all going. And that works for Putin because he doesn't have a lot of positive diplomatic force mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in the world right now. Mm-hmm. It, it is pretty much negative, mm-hmm. and that negativity d- does help him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this point about chaos and disorder, you know, I think that, I mean, certainly the North Koreans would view chaos and disorder is a good thing. Um, I'm sure both of them welcome, I mean, unfortunately welcome what is happening in Gaza as well, yeah. uh, creating Sadly. more uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Yeah, I mean, I think on the, the, in terms of China, the there is, I think there's probably uh, a violent ambivalence to what is happening between DPRK and Russia. On the one hand, I think that they don't like North Korea getting too close to Russia. Historically, they've never liked it when North Korea gets too close to Russia, and they've tried to pull them back, engage them, and pull them in. Mm. On the other hand, um, uh, I think, you know, 
if they can make the world more complicated for the United States, uh, there's something to be said for that as well. Nice. Um, and um, so I'm really interested to see what comes out of this, uh, the, 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 these meetings. The, Wang Yi, um, when he's been asked about it, has just defaulted to these very bland talking points about, oh, you know, that's a bilateral issue between DPRK and Russia. We're not involved in any of that. Mm. But, but um, you know, personally, I think it's in China's interest not to support this. It's because uh, it's they don't want East Asia, they don't want their region pulled into the war in Europe. I mean, this is pulling this region into the war in Europe. There's no way China wants that. Like, how is that good for China? But at the same time, I don't think they can get out of their own way in terms of doing something that's in their interest if it ends up looking like it's helping the United States. You hmm. know, I think that's very difficult for them. Um, but I guess we'll just have to see uh, what, comes, what comes out of this meeting. Um, 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 Jill, this has really been a fascinating discussion. Um, your years, decades of expertise on Russia is sorely needed right now. Um, we really appreciate your coming on the show. We have to have you back again as things develop. Um, I'd love and, to. And thank you again for coming. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. I was yeah. a great. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Maybe enjoy is not the word, but it was stimulating. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I want to sit in on your class on Putin's. Uh, was it Putin's generation? Oh, the Putin generation. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. just the title Anytime. of that course. We're doing, yeah. Um, uh, and so that's uh, it for another episode of the Impossible State. Thank you to all of our listeners and viewers online, and we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks for the next uh, edition of The Impossible State. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.